Welcome back to Conversing with Creatives. I'm Jake Hasikov, and I can't wait for you guys to hear this next episode. My guest is Alex Olin. She's a really talented writer, a truly engaging teacher, and I had an awesome time talking with her. She's really, really funny, and I learned a lot of interesting things from our conversation. I'm also excited that this will be the first non-sports guest of the podcast. Professor Olin is a fiction writer who has published both novels and short stories. We talked a lot about the craft of writing and teaching, as well as creativity in general. Thanks for listening, everybody. Let's start the show. Yeah, right. <laughs> that will be the most dramatic thing <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah. Okay, so what's uh, let's get started then. I'm here with Professor Alex Olin. She is an author and a professor of English here at Lafayette College. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this, this is going to be a lot of fun. It's a real, real pleasure to have you on the show. So full disclosure to everyone, I am a former screenwriting student of Professor Olin's, and so she's familiar with some of the work I have written in class. And so if I recall correctly, last year on my last semester on my screenplay, you had some comments on it, which I think went something like this. This is, he was like, Jay, this is the greatest piece of writing <laughs> that I've ever seen. You are undoubtedly. I did anoint you the king of the <laughs> yes. field. I think that was your final grade. Yeah, I think so. Obviously, I was paraphrasing <laughs> and all that, but I think that was, that was close. That was, in, that was in the spirit of what mm -hmm. you had written, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm glad we got that squared away. So I guess we'll start at the beginning here. Mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a kid, did you, were you a big reader? Did you read a lot? Did you love books? Yeah, I did. I was a, I was a huge nerd. Uh, and I grew up in a very bookish household. My father was an English professor. And you know, we lived in kind of a small house for how many of us there were. So there, you know, I have three siblings. So there were six of us in this kind of small house. So my dad's books were everywhere, including like in my room. So I would just pull things down from uh, the shelf and, and read them because I loved reading so much. And I read things that completely like inappropriate ages, a lot of like early encounters with the sexy parts of adult books that I should definitely not have been <laughs> reading. And I, I definitely, you know, lived in the world of books. And because my father was an English professor and also interested in film, we also had a lot of visitors to the house, um, people who were active in those fields, or my father would take me to events. So I guess I grew up with the idea that being a writer was a possible thing that a person could do, which not everybody does grow up that way. Um, so it just made sense for me. You know, I spent a lot of, you know, a lot of time by myself as a kid thinking about stories, writing stories. I just kind of lived in that world from the start. Sure. Yeah. So you had a lot of exposure to books and things like that yeah. at a young age. And that's something that not everyone has, of course. And so this actually, it makes me think of something that I've been thinking about a lot. In American high schools, one of the things I find is that the way they teach English literature more specifically isn't all that conducive to encouraging people to get into reading a lot of the books that are assigned are classics, sometimes can be considered a little more difficult to read, not as fun, a little stiffer writing. Um, did, did you did you experience that at all? Or do you think this is a problem with the way English is taught? 
Um, I, I mean, I do think that the way that English is taught is not ideal. I personally don't think it's necessarily always because of the books being classics. I mean, being a professor, I'm sort of in favor of at least some of the curriculum um, being challenging and rigorous. And you can certainly mix it up with other stuff that's more accessible and contemporary. What I do think can be problematic is the emphasis on a certain like rigid encounter with what books are, what reading is, and uh, it does create a certain like dullness. You know, some of it has to do with people teaching towards standardized tests, and some of it has to do with like teaching people how to write the standard five paragraph essay. And I personally think that's not necessarily the most active or interesting way to get someone to read a book. And I, as a writer, spend most of my time writing stories in response to stories. And I think that could be just as um, important a way for a reader to write back to a book, tell your own version of The Great Gatsby, for example. So I think students can get as much out of doing a creative assignment as a critical one. Um, so, you know, that might be, you know, one thing that I, I think of. I feel like I get a lot of students here who show up in class and, you know, have never had the chance to do creative writing before, even though they've gone to very good high schools. And I feel like that's kind of sad. Yeah, for, for sure. So, you had a lot of exposure to this stuff, to stories, writing as a kid. You th- you thought it conceivable that hey, one day you could be a writer. Mm-hmm. Was there a point in your life where you said, okay, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do? Yeah, yeah, there was. Well, there was many points in which I made that declaration and then stepped away from it immediately (laughs) in an act of like cowardice and self-shaming. So I definitely wrote a lot when I was in high school. You know, I wrote a lot of like uh, angsty poetry about the (laughs) suburbs and uh, how empty it was, etc. You know, my sad heart and cynical outlook that I had as a teenager and so forth. Um, And then I got to college and I, I actually didn't do any creative writing myself in college. I was kind of intimidated by the idea and the college that I went to, you had to apply uh, to enter a creative writing class, like submit work and be accepted, uh, which is true of a lot of colleges, although we don't do that here. And the idea of doing that to me was so intimidating that I never took a class and I actually never wrote at all when I was in college, even though it was what I secretly wanted to do. So I started to make alternate plans for myself uh, and try to come up with what I thought were more practical ideas of like what I would do with my love of writing. And I decided, it's still not a very practical idea, but I was like, oh, I'll get a PhD in literature. And um, that way I can still be sort of like writing adjacent, if not an actual writer. And so when I was a senior, you know, I wrote this very uh, long critical thesis and I um, uh, decided, you know, well, I'm going to go to graduate school. And then it came time, like literally the application deadline came around and I was paralyzed. And I was like, you know what, I may be going to like put it off for a little bit uh, because it doesn't feel quite right. And so I moved to New York and I got a job working in book publishing, which again was like writing adjacent. Um, And it was actually a great job. I was an editorial assistant at Random House and I learned all about the book uh, business and became really familiar with the process by which books are accepted and edited and made into final books. Um, It was a real education. And I was like, well, maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll be, you know, an editor. Um, But at the same time, I still really wanted to write. So I started writing again, kind of in secret, like I would come home from work and I would write in my apartment and I would never tell anyone that writing, you know, was what I actually really wanted to do. And I thought, well, maybe I can just keep this up sort of indefinitely, like working in book publishing during the day. And, um, and then writing at night. And, and then it just sort of 
got to me after a while because a, a huge portion of my job as like a 22-year-old editorial assistant was to reject the manuscripts by <laughs> writers <laughs> who sent their work in. So like my, I worked in this little cubicle and when I was sitting down, like the stacks of manuscripts were like way over my head. It was, you know, like six feet tall stacks of manuscripts on either side of me. And whenever I had a free minute, my job was to, you know, sit there and compose rejection. You know, I would read them, but I would read like the first five pages, if that, and then I would reject them. And uh, we actually had so many manuscripts that came to Random House by people who were persistent yet crazy <laughs> that we, we invented a fake name to reject them by. So an editor who did not exist, who was named Raul Garcia, he wrote very thoughtful and kind but firm rejection notices to... Someone's got to be responsible for <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, and then if someone called asking for Raul Garcia, we'd be, just be like, oh, uh, let me transfer you. And then, you know, accidentally hang up on them or something. Raul, Raul Garcia terrible. took a lot of long lunches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was always out of the office, that Raul. Anyway, so uh, after a while, this um, kind of dual life, it really started to, to get to me. And I felt like I would never be able to convince myself that I could be a writer if I spent all day rejecting other writers. It was just kind of too hard for me to hold both ideas in my head at the same time. So in a kind of fit of like 20-somethingness, I uh, quit my very good job at Random House and I got rid of all my stuff insofar as I had stuff at that age. And uh, I bought a really cheap car and I moved to New Mexico. And that was kind of my moment of saying, okay, I'm really going to do this. And I I decided to, you know, give myself a few years and I just like I worked at Barnes and Noble and I worked, you know, as a temp and I just spent all my time writing. And that so that was my big moment of like declaration for me. And I felt like if I didn't do it then when I was still young and, you know, uh, fairly free and unhindered by, you know, a steady career, if I didn't do it then, I was never going to do it at all. Yeah. So you kind of had the idea that you wanted to be a writer, but you didn't necessarily have the push yet you didn't make the firm decision so do you think that if you had made the decision to be a writer outright without going through that that's that period of doing other things and just keep kind of writing on the side mm -hmm. do you think anything would have changed would you be what anything be what would be different I don't know if anything would be that much different. Uh, I meet people all the time who have made the decision that they want to be writers, and they do it at all different moments. Right? Some people have that moment when they're 16. I have students now come to my office and say that they know that that's what they want to do. But I also, in my writing life, I spend a lot of time speaking about writing at conferences or bookstores or uh, book clubs. And I meet a lot of people who are making that declaration, like at the age of 40, after having done something else, or in addition to doing something else, and they have always harbored this love, and they want to they want to do it. So, I mean, to me, if you really love writing, and it's something that you want to do, it's always going to be with you in one form or another. And it doesn't really, doesn't really go away. And it'll come back and haunt you <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah, it's what it's one of those one of those professions that is like that and not all not all are like that. It's mm -hmm. probably why it's so alluring in a lot of ways. Right. So you are an author now. Mm -hmm. uh, you did make that declaration. It has worked out. So we'll get a, a little bit into the writing process then. So in the idea generation stage, how do you do that? How do you generate new ideas? Do your ideas come from within your head mostly, the external world, your, things you observe, some combination? Yeah, I would say it's some kind of combination of that. And a lot of my ideas come 
actually through writing itself, right? So I'll be working on a draft and things will come out through the writing of a scene. You know, it takes me a while to get to know what I'm what I'm doing. So I often come to a piece in a way that's pretty, uh, I don't want to say half-assed, but let's say not fully formed, right? And I allow the draft itself to, you know, dictate where things go. I've met other writers who are like, oh no, I have the whole thing outlined like from page one. And I'm like, wow, congratulations. Yeah, good for you. What's that like? Uh, That's not what it's like for me at all. I go through a very like spastic and reiterative process where I have one idea, that idea sucks. So I pivot to another idea, that idea sucks too. And you just keep going until you're like back at the, at the first place. Um, so that's, you know, kind of ridiculous, but it's the only way that things have ever really worked for me. The one reliable thing that's always been there for me as a writer has been reading, right? So when I'm stuck or the way that I get most inspired is like I read somebody else's work and it shows me some kind of possibility. And I think, oh boy, I really want to do something like that. Or I'll return to a book that I love time and time again, trying to unravel its mystery, figure out like, what is it that makes this book so good? And of course, the best books you can never really figure that out. You can't dissect it, but you can try to approach it and form your own sort of version of it if you can. That's interesting that you look to outside sources, other books for inspiration when you get stuck. Mm -hmm. It's something I've thought a bit about as well. Uh, In a certain sense, can that be limiting uh, in the sense that you, you look at other work and then you say, oh, well, that was a good idea. I can't do that idea. That, that idea is already taken. What is that? What, 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 do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there is such a thing as formula and not wanting to completely copy or repeat something. And things do become stale, right? Um, and I think we see that particularly in... Uh, mediums like film, right, where people really are making the same thing over and over again without great results. But I think what I'm talking about more is entering into like a conversation with the book and kind of taking some element from it. So you're never going to take everything from a book wholesale and just repeat it. But you're kind of like a magpie, right? So you're like, well, I'm really interested in the structure of this particular book and the way that um, things are put together. So maybe I'll steal a little bit of that. And then in this other book, I'm really fascinated by something really unusual that the writer has done syntactically or with their sentence structure. And I'm really going to try to write my own version of that. So by the time you go around and kind of collect your own little shiny bits from other people's work and put them in your own little nest, it amounts to you know a completely different experience, hopefully, for the reader. So I guess that's what I'm what I'm going for ultimately is you know to reinvent through uh, this sense of conversation with other books. Let's go back to what you mentioned a moment ago about how you don't outline, you learn more about your projects through the process of writing itself. Is that scary at all, not knowing where something can end up? Yeah, it's terrifying (laughs) and extremely stressful. I mean, I wish that I had some idea with a short story, it's it's not quite so bad. With a short story, I think um, it often feels more playful for me. Um, you can really try something on for size, and honestly, if it doesn't work out, you know, it's not the end of the world. But there's nothing more terrifying than being like two years into a novel and still have no idea where it's going or what it's supposed to be. And and actually, the more you get into writing a novel, often the less clarity you achieve. So that it's like, it's like not only that you're fumbling in the dark down a hallway, you've actually lost the hallway. You don't know if you're in a house. <laughs> Like you don't know who you are anymore. That's what the experience is like. So you really have to have um, a lot of faith or you just have to be uh, incredibly stubborn. And that's, you know, that's been my one saving grace as a writer is, you know, I'm not particularly sure of myself. Uh, 
but I am incredibly stubborn, so I don't like to let things drop, and I just keep showing up day after day until something turns into a book. Yeah, stubbornness is a is a is a virtue <laughs> in that way for sure. Yeah. Something you said in an interview that I found online of you, uh, which I th- thought was very striking. Mm-hmm. You said, "I write because a perfect book always exists in my mind." Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that that thought? For right. Us? Yeah. I mean, that's another thing that does keep me going. Right. So there's always like the unwritten book is the only perfect book. Right. And so I always have some idea that I'm writing towards a certain kind of book that I'd like to write. And then inevitably, the book that I write falls so far short of it. It's just incredibly sad and drab and real. And it's never what I wanted to do. And I would quit writing, except that by that time, there's another perfect book looming on the horizon. So you're, you're always chasing that mirage, you know, and you try to get not too hung up on the failure part and more on the uh, focus more on the aspiration part of it. I think one of the reasons why this quotation was so striking to me is because it seems completely applicable to so many aspects of life. I find myself just I'm driving the car one day and I have this pang of inspiration for like two minutes, like, yes, like in, in anything, it doesn't have to be a creative project, just any anything I want to achieve in life. And that's that's so true. There's always that ideal that that is chased, but never fully, never fully right. grasped. Yeah. And I think, you know, a big part of being a writer or an artist or actually an athlete or really anybody is that you have to, you have to develop some kind of relationship with failure. Right. You have to be able to figure out how you're going to deal with not just the possibility, but the reality of failure. And what are you going to do with that? Like, are you going to then try to pick yourself up and work on you know, the thing until it's better or work on the next thing, which is going to be better? Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and the idea that you're just going to do something so well from the start that failure won't exist, that's just not possible. So you have to figure out. Uh, whatever your psychological defenses are going to be that will help you move uh, into that relationship with with suckage, with things that are bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a, a little bit more about your particular writing habits. How often do you write? Do you have a specific routine, time of day, a place that you write? Mm. Yeah, I used to be a lot more precious about those kind of things, like more sort of diva-like, like, oh, I can only, <laughs> I can only thrive like, a, like an orchid under certain very yeah. specific circumstances. And I used to, like uh, in an ideal world, you know, want to work first thing in the morning for three hours and every day or as close to every day as I possibly could. And my life just isn't set up to do that anymore, Um, at at least during the semester. It's not possible to do that. Um, And I've just realized that if you hold on too tightly to that kind of thing, it's a good way to not achieve anything at all. So now it's more catch as catch can. I also used to only think I could work at home. And now I like find myself grabbing like, oh, I have 45 minutes that I can sit in this Starbucks and hammer away at a couple of sentences. I think I'm going to do that. And actually, one uh, one thing that was really helpful to me was um, when I first started teaching here, we brought this writer to campus named George Saunders, who's a great, great, great writer and a really nice guy. And also a really dedicated, like, family man. And uh, he has two daughters. And he told me that, you know, when his daughters were growing up, he would just, like, he would drive them to practice. And then he would 
always be there, but he would take like the 45 minutes and he would sit there and work and then he would take them to, you know, wherever their next activity was. And he just, you know, he took those snippets of time and he made the most out of them. So I've tried to become more more like that insofar as I possibly can. Yeah, there really are so many really minor, really, but also really convenient excuses not Mm -hmm. to sit down and write. So what what would you say it is that gets you pumped up to write? What puts you in the mood? You're like, okay, now I've got it. I'm I'm in I'm in a rhythm. I can I can sit down now and do this. Yeah, well, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> really, really strong coffee. Like, where would I be without it? Nowhere, still in bed, <laughs> staring at the ceiling. Uh, that's kind of my my main thing is just a lot of coffee. Um, but also I will often, like, have a book with me and I will um, – I will read a sentence or two, especially of a book that has the kind of tone that uh, that I want to go for is doing something really interesting. And then I'll look at that and then I'll try and use that, you know, as a as a jumping off point. I know some people write to music. I actually cannot write to any kind of music, especially music that has any kind of words. I just find it um, super intrusive. So like when I go to Starbucks, like I put on headphones, but there were like noise canceling headphones. Yeah. So all I hear is the sort of like serial killer issue sound of my own breathing (laughs) and that's oddly comforting because you want to get into the work as much as possible and uh, sort of uh, try to ignore what's going on uh, around you Um, the other thing that I try to do which is a very old trick and many people do it but when I leave off writing I try to leave off not at the ending of a scene but I'll try to write the first sentence of the next scene and some notes to myself as to what uh, is supposed to happen there. That way, when you jump back into it, you have a roadmap for where you're supposed to be going. Sometimes I have come back, like it's been so long since I've been able to write that the notes to myself are actually completely unintelligible. (laughs) There'll be this first sentence that's like, Bob and Sue are on a bus and the note says, you know, crash, bang, or whatever, you know, it doesn't actually say crash, bang, or it says, you know, important family scene here. (laughs) I am writing a Dr. Seuss book, but a very deep adult version with a lot of rhyming. Anyway, so you have to be very clear to yourself in the notes. That's one thing I've learned. Yeah, it makes yeah, it definitely makes the jumping off point a lot easier when you when you pick it back up. Yeah. So, a lot of creative writing is writing about stuff that you don't necessarily know on a deeply familiar basis. Not everything you write comes directly from your personal experiences. One, for instance, could write a screenplay about an unhappily married man (laughs) without being an unhappily married man. This sounds familiar. (laughs) Yes, this does sound familiar. This is coming from the 21-year-old sitting across the room from you. So how do you do this as a writer? Is it research, introspection, attempts at empathy? Yeah, some combination of those. I'm not very good at doing research, uh, which is why I don't ever write something like a historical novel, for example. Uh, I'm just not good at keeping facts in my head. <laughs> That's why I make <laughs> up things for for a living. Um, so for me, I tend to do really the most minimal kind of research, like, oh, you're a pharmacist? And then I Google, like, what do pharmacists do all day? And I come up with some, you know, just really sort of simple, <laughs> simple things. Um, and, you know, by far the vast majority majority of it comes from empathy and projection and also observation. I mean, I'm a big people watcher, people observer, thinker about people. Um, So a lot of the things that I write are some combination of that triad of like what comes from me, what comes from someone else and what I've gleaned through some minimal amount of, of research. What do you think about the importance of a novel being true to life in a certain sense? Obviously, it's not integral like it would be if you're writing some type of nonfiction. But 
is there some is there some element w- w- when you're writing you want it to be in a certain sense realistic obviously depending on on genre I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to define truth. That sounds that sounds like a politician saying, you know, it depends what the meaning of is is. <laughs> but what I mean by that is that there are all kinds of novels that I consider to be extremely true to life. They're not the slightest bit realistic, right? So George Saunders, that writer I was mentioning, he's a brilliant story that's literally the characters are like um, – Doritos bag and a talking rubber band. But I think that story is one of the most trenchant commentaries on contemporary life that, you know, I've ever read. So the notion of realism uh, can be, I think, um, it can be a little bit of a red herring, I guess, for for writers. When I'm when I'm reading a book, I often will feel like really like jolted in the solar plexus by a novel that I have no idea if it's technically realistic or not, you know, but it feels true to me and it feels important. It holds a mirror up to society in a way that feels um, remarkable. And I'm less interested in whether or not it accurately, um, you know, represents the lives of pharmacologists, for example. So you teach a lot of creative writing courses which are a lot more personal than uh, most other kinds of college classes. So students in your classes can be writing about very intimate, very personal things. Are you ever reading a student's work and you say to yourself, whoa, I did not expect that out of that kid? Yeah, that happens all the time. I don't, <clears throat> you know, I think people really surprise me and I think they surprise themselves a lot of the time. I mean, that's one of the cool things that I hear a lot as a teacher is a student saying like, I don't actually know where this came from or I didn't know that I could do this. You know, a lot of students in the screenwriting course say like, if you had told me, you know, a year ago that I would have a completed, you know, treatment and 30 pages of a screenplay, I would have thought I will I have no idea how to do that. So there's that kind of excitement. But I think there is a kind of a kind of uh, intimacy to creative work that to me is really special and it's why it's really important to like make sure the classroom is a safe space where people can try those things out where people can write about things that are risky whether they're personal or 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 true to their lives or not it's important that they feel like they can experiment with writing about those things and that's going to be okay it's going to be received with care and not dismissed and that's something i really care about as a teacher because i think there's no good art without like taking risks right and you have to make sure that people know they can they can do that and they can step outside this very like you know careful zone that a lot of education creates yeah, for sure. And for whatever it's worth, I definitely I definitely felt that with that with yeah, our class. And I think I think a lot of people did. Yeah. Good. So this this leads nicely into into another question. So part of being a writer is having your work reviewed, critiqued, criticized. How do you react to this? Does negative feedback or positive feedback affect you strongly? Yeah, of course it does. I mean, I have tried to kind of distance myself from it as much as I I can, and I I read um, I read a lot less of the reviews than I used to, um, just because they do really get in your head. And even a review that's positive can characterize your your work in a way that feels really foreign to you, and and that can be so strange and alienating and. Um, Sometimes it's good. Sometimes you're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And that's actually really helpful to me. And that's interesting. And other times you're like, I don't recognize myself here at all. Um, And I mean, I think the main thing about reviews is that they're not there for the writers. You know, it's not a performance evaluation. It's not uh, even a, a fan note from a reader. It's a... 
it's a conversation to other readers and it's not designed to have the writer as the audience. So, you know, as I've gotten more experience, I've tried to like step away from reviews and remember that in some ways, even though my book is the heart of the conversation, it's not about, it's not about or for me. And I've tried to like say, okay, you can talk about that and I'm going to stay here in my little private writing cave <laughs> and do my own thing. Yeah. So you say the, the book isn't necessarily about or for you. So where would you stand on a person, a reader, reading your book and then coming to some interpretation that may be very different from the way you, the way you perceive it? Um, I assume you wouldn't say, oh, they're, they're wrong. This this reader? No, I definitely wouldn't say that they're wrong. I mean, obviously there 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 are some people that I'd be like, really? That's what you think it's about? That's, Perhaps there are some yeah. some wrong answers. <laughs> there might but. be some wrong answers, yeah. But um, you know, to me, that's that's one of the joys of literature is that um, the book goes out into the world. It has a life of its own. It has a relationship with readers. That's its own thing, and I can't dictate that, right? I can't be like hovering over each copy of the book saying, no, here, this is what I meant here, right? Um, so you know, I, I definitely kind of embrace that insofar as you know, it's not like poison pen letters written by complete lunatics. Not that I've ever gotten any of those, but sometimes people do say off the wall stuff. Yeah, that would, that would be creepy. The image of just the writer in the bookstore just <laughs> right. popping behind someone's shoulder, like, oh no, 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 it's that's actually this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you're already an accomplished author, but how do you continue to learn about writing, about storytelling, or all the rest? Um, well, actually, I think being a teacher is actually a great setup for that because students will bring a lot. I mean, I try to bring up uh, writers that I am reading and that I'm excited about uh, and films and TV shows. I'm teaching a new class on writing for TV right now. But also students will come in and talk about some book that they're very enthused about and I will then go home and read it and, and learn about it or I just came from this writing for TV class and the students had to do presentations on a TV show that they are big fans of and you know quite a few of them I had seen but some of them I had not and I was like oh that's really interesting and that's like there's generational stuff too that speaks to different people at different times and it's good for me to kind of keep on top of that or at least try to know what um, the kids these days are interested in as they say yeah <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring writers? It's clearly a tough road for a lot of reasons, financial being one of them. What, do you, what would you say to someone? Yeah, I mean, I would say if you are looking to do it um, to make money then that's a terrible idea. <laughs> don't, don't do yeah. that. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there are two things I would say. One, one is that, you know, if you want to do it, then, you know, do it out of some kind of purity of motive. Not because, you know, I believe that we are all such innocents, but like purity of motive is the only thing that's going to survive, right? It's the only thing that's going to keep you, keep you going and uh, the only thing that can be sustained because thinking of writing as a career or as a route to fame or as something that will make you friends or these are just incredibly foolish ideas, right? So there has to be something driving you that is separate from those things. And then you have to figure out a way to, um, to make a life out of that. So it may be that... Uh, you do something completely different, like to make money and you write on the side, or you may, you know, decide to work in publishing or go into teaching or do something else that's connected to writing and then still do your, your writing. But, you know, this is sort of connected to what I was saying earlier about people um, talking to me at all different stage of their lives is, 
if you truly love writing, I think it will, it, the good thing about it is that it will always be there for you. So I have a lot of people who come to me, like people uh, in college saying like, I have to make this choice now. Like they feel like, oh, do I go to law school or do I become a writer? And it's like, when you're 22, you become one thing or the other. And then that's the end forever, you know. Um, Sounds oddly familiar. Story. Yeah, exactly. But it actually doesn't necessarily work that way. Like people's lives are long and they meander through a lot of different things. And if you love writing, like keep it in your heart and find a way. Uh, you know, you can do it now. You can do it when you're 30. Like you don't age out of it. It's not like being a gymnast. You know, it's you know, it's still going to be around, and you can find a way to make it part of your life somehow. We can now get into the lighter <laughs> se- segment of the podcast. Right. We'll do some quicker questions, which you can give as much or as little detail to okay. as you'd like. What are you reading right now? Uh, right now. I'm reading, um, I just finished a book that I loved. You might like it too. It's uh, a novel by a woman named Elizabeth McKenzie called The Portable Veblen. So um, kind of based on the social theorist Veblen, but he's not actually in the book. It's just the main female character is named after him. But she has a um, an obsession. You might even say it's almost a love story with a squirrel. <laughs> that does sound like me. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> I know how you feel about squirrels. Too. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's a very kind of what I was saying earlier about how you know there's there's true to life and then there's there's true you know and this book is not a realist novel but it's funny and it's smart and it takes on like actually at the military medical industrial complex at one point like it just does a lot while also being really funny so I really enjoyed it what are you watching on television? Uh, I really love The Americans. So season, I think season four um, just started. So I'm a huge fan of that in the drama department. And then in comedy, I watch a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Which yes. I'm not going to say it's the best show, but I, I really like it. How many times a day do you check your email? I'm not sure I can even count that high. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> it's terrible. I, yeah, all the time. I do not get very many important emails yet I continue no, to check it I know, as if me I do. Too. I'm always like take away these emails that are not interesting emails and bring me some other emails that are yeah, better. That would so, be nice. Yeah. That would be nice. <laughs> what are some of your pet peeves? My pet peeves. Um, one of my pet, this isn't going to make me sound like a grammar snob, which I'm totally not, but uh, <laughs> the whole like people who say between you and I, uh-huh. that's not correct. <laughs> You know, that, that bugs me. Yeah. So yeah. when you're in the bookstore uh, telling people how to read your novel, you can right. also... Uh, I'm also going to correct their grammar. I'm going to be yeah. super popular when yeah, I'm doing that. Oh, oh <laughs> cer- certainly. Everyone, everyone loves that. Um, everyone loves being corrected. <laughs> one, of, one of mine is whenever I'm eating somewhere in public in a restaurant or something, and there's another group of people not at my table... And they're laughing like really loudly at something. Mm-hmm. I really dislike that. I want to be part of the joke. <laughs> I, I don't like. I, I, I just so understand. Why what you are just they go t- over and ask them what's up? I, I, sh- I should. Yeah. I should. I want to be part of it. Yeah, that's funny. My thing about restaurants is uh, when I'm with another woman and the waiter keeps calling us ladies. Like, how's the food tonight, ladies? I'm just like, shut up. You know, how, you can't pull it off. This yeah, anyway. exactly. Am I like a? Yeah, and how old am I supposed to be? Like in either way, I don't like. I don't like ladies. Not I a get fan. it. I don't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't like things in my pockets. Really? Too Nothing. many things in my pocket. I, I could have like my phone in my pocket because obviously I have attachment problems with it, but <laughs> too many things now. I feel burdened. Yeah. I feel like I'm being weighed down. It's uncomfortable. I, 
That's funny. I, I would just like was uh, flying uh, to California and, you know, I was going through security and you have to take everything out of your pockets before you go through. And it was literally like a 15 minute process <laughs> of unburdenment. I was like, oh, there's the other chapstick I was looking for yeah. and all my change and a bunch of crumpled receipts. And yeah, it was terrible. It was like I was like a turtle carrying my whole life on my back, except <laughs> it was in my pockets. And then the thing about doing that at airports is there's so much pressure there. Mm-hmm. Like I've taken things out of my pockets plenty of times in my life yet. For some reason, like I'm really struggling <laughs> right. in this in this moment. <laughs> if you weren't a writer or a teacher, what would you want to be doing? Um, I don't know. None of my uh, hobbies or interests are the slightest bit sort of marketable. Uh, I kind of like cooking, so that maybe would be uh, something. But otherwise, I just sort of like to zone out and walk my dog. And I, I feel like there's not really a profession there. You know what I'm saying? Or wa- watching TV <laughs> and talking about it. There you should know? be. Even there, if should there, be. there should be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is the worst, best thing? So something everyone thinks is so amazing that you just like, no, I don't, I don't get it. Mm, um, sports radio. Oh, okay. That's one thing that makes my skin crawl and how like those those guys on sports radio, like they will talk about the same thing. Like those people can have like a five hour conversation about Johnny Menziel or however you say his name. Yeah, Menziel, like, yeah. How do you find that much stuff to say about anybody? Um, it just goes around and around and around. And I'm just flummoxed that this is like a very popular thing. Like millions of people are listening to sports radio at any given time. And I would like to run out of the room immediately. Yeah, so I'm a big sports fan. I love sports. I love watching sports. Uh, my previous two podcast episodes were with sports oh, people. Oh, sorry. But no, no, <laughs> Just no, I'm insulted not, your main I'm not, thing. <laughs> I, I think we're done here. <laughs> no, but I I do sympathize with your point very much. Um, first, they can go on and on. And I like, I like talking about sports because I, f- I find it interesting. Not everyone does, but it's got to be toward a purpose. It needs to be di- a directed yeah. conversation. It can't just be let's mull around for five hours. And yeah, it goes around and around and around. And they get really aggressive with each other too. too like negative. they're very argumentative. Yeah. And I, I listen sometimes and I'm like, man, I wish I cared about anything as much as you guys care <laughs> about this completely minor like rule violation that took place last <laughs> night. Like where do you find like the passion to keep going? You should, you should have those guys on your podcast and ask them where they find the vocation I should. for I'm, sports radio. I'll have to try not to insult them though. <laughs> right. be, Don't tell them what I said. I'll be careful. <laughs> yeah, actually we'll, we'll bring you in. We'll bring you in as a guest. Uh, <laughs> right. Actually, writer Alex Olin <laughs> said this about you. Right. You're going for now like a Jerry Springer style podcast. Yeah. Oh wow. So many ideas. This is <laughs> yeah. completely changing (laughs) what is something very trivial and unimportant that you have ridiculously high standards about cheese cheese huh yeah yeah i really think that life is too short to eat like cheap cheese like what is wrong oh wow yeah i can't say i've branched out much in the in the cheese (laughs) department uh is pepper jack uh, out oh, of the Jay. ordinary. Oh, yeah, Jay, I, you've you've made me so sad. Don't ask right me to now. list the number of cheeses I know because it'll it will, oh, it will hurt so, you. So many great things in life await you in your future. Then, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I guess that's true. It's a that's, wide world of cheese out there. That's what adulthood is about. <laughs> yeah, about. It is. It's about eating more cheese, Jay. Remember that someone in college told you that you can hold on to that forever. I will. That's that's why I go here. That's why I go to Lafayette <laughs> yeah. College. Your for tuition dollars wis- at work. Wisdom like this. <laughs> One of my things is pancakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't eat pancakes that aren't great pancakes. Mm. This stems from me as a child loving IHOP, thinking uh-huh. it is the most high quality pancakes you've ever had. I would go to 
I hop like for every birthday uh, as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, do you want to go somewhere nice? No, we're going. <laughs> we're going to IHOP, Mom. Like you mm-hmm. know, you know the drill. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's that's just how I've been about pancakes. Wait, so are are you saying though that IHOP you still think is great, or you've now realized that there is like a whole better yeah. category of pancake beyond IHOP? Okay, this is. This is upset. This is an upsetting topic for <laughs> me, sorry. but it's sorry a, to bring it up. It's okay. Then. Yeah, it's my fault. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's just because I was young and I had these strange illusions that like the first bunch of times I had IHOP pancakes, they were amazing. But the last bunch of times I've had IHOP pancakes, I've been kind of yeah. disappointed. It's not living up to the memories. I know they're kind of industrial. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I, I didn't want to say anything at first, but I had a similar experience where, as a kid, you know, I grew up in Canada and we didn't have IHOP because. Also, so another thing is that even though they call it international, it's really it's really not. And we didn't have it in Canada. So when we would do road trips to the U.S., like eating at IHOP was this huge decadent American treat. And uh, so I loved it and associated it with all that was good and bountiful right. in the world. And then as an adult, I went back and I was like, oh, these are kind of not especially delicious. And it was a sad moment for me. I think what we have to claim is that they were once fantastic. Right. And just the, the standards of, of yesteryear yeah. <laughs> were better. <laughs> of your. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they must have fired a, a key figure in the in the industry in the, in the organization mm-hmm. or something and they've just they just don't care that, anymore. That must be it. Yeah, they sold out. <laughs> if you could live in a different historical context, where and when would you live? I'm not actually sure that I w- that I would. That's a actually. that's a fair answer. Yeah. I I feel like a big part of that is like being a woman and recognizing that in most like early historical contexts, like um, it's not nearly as yeah. good to be a that's, woman as it is that now. Is sadly, like, factual. It's hard to sort of romanticize like oh the Middle Ages I could have died in childbirth at the age of fifteen like there's just not <laughs> <Yeah>. a lot <laughs> of yeah. you know uh, idealism in that for me. So yeah, there there are unfortunately less choices. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Stupid question. <laughs> No, that's just my own, you know, thing that I bring to it. So that actually brings us to the present day social media. Mm -hmm. Are we better off without it or any tech or technology generally? Not all technology, but yeah, smartphones, etc. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly understand some of the laments about attention span. And I definitely find even for myself that I spend too much time, you know, interrupting my reading or viewing to to check. But at the same time, I love a lot of that stuff. I mean, I love being able to be in touch with people. I really enjoy social media. And for me as a writer, the ability to publish something online and have it read by people around the world or to be in conversation with writers and readers on something like Twitter. I mean, that's kind of unprecedented and yeah. amazing. So I'm not going to sit here and say that I think it's all bad because it's definitely not, in my opinion. I would agree. This podcast may or may not exist <laughs> otherwise. That's right. What about podcasting? Now, yeah. People don't talk about that enough as the great you know, social media oh, for uh, sure. innovation of our time. It is so fundamental to, <laughs> to our, our very existence. It's at the heart of it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it totally is. Well, I want to thank you very sincerely for coming on. It's I had a great a time. Pleasure. It was a great conversation. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Anytime. Okay.